Good morning, everybody. My name is Jim Head. Uh, got a better shoulder, though. Too soon? My name is David Kakish. I'm one of the elders here at Cornerstone Church, and I want to start out this morning with a random question. Have you guys ever seen uh, a redwood tree in California, like whether a picture or in person? Have you ever seen those things? I, I've never seen it in person. I really want to. It is crazy to me. I mean, I was reading this week. Some of them can measure up to 300 feet tall, and some have measured more than 94 feet around in circumference. The height is crazy, you know, height I don't really get. The circumference is what gets me. 94 feet around? That is nuts. Uh, that's not my real question. My real question is this. Can you imagine having to try to chop one of those down with an axe? How long would that take? Uh, how many swings of the axe would you just need to hammer out? And how tired would you get in the process? I thought about it, and in my mind, I think I could swing with all of my might, maybe 30 minutes. Like, I mean, a good day, maybe an hour, really pushing it and like wanting to die, maybe two hours. Then I think I'd probably step back to look at my progress, how far I'd come along, and uh, I would see that I probably barely made a dent in that thing, and I would feel like this whole endeavor was hopeless, right? I would think to myself, I've given it my best. I am exhausted, my arms are on fire, this thing hasn't budged an inch, I'll never be able to chop this tree down. Anyone else think they'd probably feel that way trying to chop down a redwood with an ax? That's why I love this quote from uh, the Puritan Richard Sibbs so much. He says this, the tree falls upon the last stroke, yet all the strokes help the work forward. It's puritanical to be sure. The tree falls upon the last stroke, yet all the strokes help it forward. What's he saying? Sibbs is saying the tree won't fall until the last swing of the ax. No doy right? The last swing, you get it, you hear cracking sounds, the tree starts to tip, you get to yell out timber, Woo! that's what you're after, that's when it falls. But his point is this, every stroke before the last one, every swing that felt like it accomplished nothing, helped the work forward. We give all the credit to the final swing. That's the one we're hoping for, that's the one we're waiting for, the final swing, but his point is every swing before then was just as important. It helped the work forward. That holds true for falling trees, and that holds true for our sanctification, the process by which the Holy Spirit and our efforts were being made into the image of Christ. Um, there is a tree planted in each of our hearts that is the size of a redwood tree, 300 feet tall and 94 feet in circumference. There is a redwood tree of sin in our hearts, but if we persevere in God's strength and we keep swinging, Every swing that feels like it's accomplishing nothing, every chop that doesn't even seem to make a dent helps the work forward. It helps the work forward. But the truth is, along the way, uh, some of us get discouraged by our lack of progress, right? We feel like we've been chopping and chopping, and we've not even made a dent, and the endeavor of fighting sin in our heart feels futile. It feels hopeless. And then doubt creeps in, and we start to think, I've really been trying, and I'm exhausted, and I've not made a dent. This hasn't budged an inch and so we lay down the axe and we give up. We stop swinging. If, uh, if that's you, if that resonates with you, uh, I just want to encourage you, don't stop swinging. The tree falls upon the last stroke, yet all the strokes help the work forward. And on this side of eternity, um, there's no such thing as sinless perfection for us, as much as we want it. Uh, we're always going to struggle with sin. Um, and even if we can never fell the tree fully on this side of eternity, here's the good news. God is honored by our efforts not our results. God is honored by our efforts, not our results. Uh, so let's keep swinging. Uh, 
for God's glory and uh, our joy. And that's where we're at. We're finishing up 1 Samuel chapter 3, and as we've seen, there is a redwood tree planted firmly, deeply within Eli's heart. And because he ignored it, uh, God sends a message to Samuel that God's not only going to cut down that tree, he's going to cut Samuel, I'm sorry, not Samuel, he'll cut Eli down with it. And it's been a heavy verses, I get that, but I'm convinced that the text today gives us some hints uh, that this message, what's happening in Eli's life, is just what he needed to kind of get him back on the right path. That's what I'm convinced of. To be clear, God will still keep his word. He's going to bring earthly consequences on Eli and Eli's family. They're still going to experience the consequences of their sins. But if I'm reading it correctly, I think we're going to see some redemption in Eli's story. And hopefully that we see this redemption and reversal in Eli's story, it might spur us on in our own Redwood projects as we move. Where we left off last week, God told Samuel what and why he's going to judge Eli's house. Uh, where we're picking up this week, he, we're going to get to see how it plays out. So our outline for today has three points. It's this. Uh, true love is willing to speak hard truths, 1 Samuel 3, verse 15. Point two is going to be it's never too late to turn it around, verses 16 through 18. And then uh, the God of reversal, chapter 3, 19, verses 4, 1. So if you have your Bible, open up with me to 1 Samuel 3, starting with verse 15. Let's hear the word of the Lord together. If you don't have your Bible, I have it up on a slide. Here we go. Samuel lay until morning. Then he opened the doors of the house of the Lord, and Samuel was afraid to tell the vision to Eli. But Eli called Samuel and said, Samuel, my son. And he said, here I am. And Eli said, what was it that he told you? Do not hide it from me. May God do so to you and more also if you hide anything from me of all that he told you. So Samuel told him everything, and he had nothing from him. And Eli said, it is the Lord. Let him do what seems good to him. And Samuel grew, and the Lord was with him, and let none of, the words, none of his words fall to the ground. And all Israel, from Dan to Beersheba, knew that Samuel was established as the prophet of the Lord. And the Lord appeared again at Shiloh, for the Lord revealed himself to Samuel at Shiloh by the word of the Lord. And the word of Samuel came to all of Israel. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God for it. May we truly hear it, may we truly understand it, and truly respond to it for God's glory and our joy. We're going to start with point one. True love is willing to speak hard truths. Just verse 15 right now. Uh, what's happening in this text? Well, God had just pronounced judgment on Eli's house for their disobedience. And in verse 15, we see that Samuel's really struggling with it. He stayed up all night. He is troubled to hear about it. And it really shouldn't surprise us to think why he would be so upset to hear that word of judgment. Samuel has been in the city of Shiloh under Eli's care since he was a toddler. Since he was a toddler, yeah, he might get to see his biological parents once a year when they come to make their annual sacrifices. He knows of them. He has a somewhat of a relationship, but for all practical purposes, Eli is everything to him. Eli is his family, right? For the last 10 to 15 years, Eli has been Samuel's foster father. For the last 10 to 15 years, Samuel has spent every day by Eli's side, helping him, learning from him. He loves Eli. He respects Eli. He looks up to Eli, and he cares for Eli, and we've already seen how much, right? No matter what time of night it was, no matter how many false alarms, middle of the night, he thinks he might hear Eli's voice. What does Samuel do? He gets up. He runs. You call me? You need something? No, go back to bed. Okay. He, he loves this dude. He cares for him. He means the world to him. But now God tells Samuel that the man who's standing front and center in his heart is a scoundrel in the court of heaven. Eli is guilty, and God is going to punish him, his sons, and his son's sons forever. That's why verse 15 says that Samuel was afraid to tell Eli this vision that God gave him. 
He was dreading the thought of telling his foster father, whom he loves deeply, the worst possible news. God is, God is going to cut you down. How's he going to say that? So after laying in bed all night, I mean, four billion thoughts are rolling through his head. He's tossing and turning. He just decides to get up in the morning and try to go through his normal routine. He has no idea when, how, or if he's even going to tell Eli this message. For now, he just kind of wants to sit on it and just pretend like it didn't and just go through his day. That's what's happening in verse 15. You all saw that when you read it. Now, what can we glean from it? Uh, Well, I call this first point, true love is willing to speak hard truths, and I want to explain why. Here's what I want to tell you. God doesn't need Samuel to deliver this message to Eli. He doesn't need him to do it. Eli already knows, right? We know that from chapter 2. God sent an unnamed prophet to pronounce this exact message to Eli. Eli already knows. So what is happening? Why is God telling Samuel to deliver a message to Eli that Eli already knows about? What's happening is that God was calling Samuel. He was summoning him to take up a monumental role in Israel's history. God was calling Samuel to be Israel's next prophet. God's mouthpiece to proclaim his word to his people. Um, This is just the first message that God wants Samuel to deliver. And this first message is kind of a doozy, right? It's kind of a doozy. Pronounce to your foster father, the man whom you know and look to who's taking care of you, that uh, I'm going to bring down his house and his sons and his son's sons and... There's nothing they can do about it. That's fun. That's a real hard one. Why is it such a doozy? That's kind of the point, though. The, kind of, that, the reason this is such a doozy, that's the point. Samuel is being called to be a prophet because Eli was being removed as the prophet priest. Why is Eli being removed? Because he failed to heed God's word. Why did he fail to heed God's word? That's the real question. Because of how God's word would affect his family. God had spoken to Eli about his sons. And what did Eli do? He sat on it. He chose to honor his family above the Lord. That's why Eli is being removed as the priest, prophet of Israel. That's why this is Samuel's first message to deliver. A word of judgment on whom? A stranger? A sinner? Family. Who will he honor? God or family? You see that? Do you see the parallels there? This is Samuel's audition. God is testing him, and the question we're supposed to ask is, will he fare any better than his father, foster father, Eli? One commentator points this up. To be a prophet and to establish God's rule in the land, Samuel would have to learn that God's word will not always be easy for him to speak or for the hearer to receive. But if Samuel's going to be faithful to God's call, he needs to deliver God's message without fear of the consequences, without fear of how they'll respond to it. If he's going to be faithful, if he's going to be God's mouthpiece, he needs to learn how to speak God's word to anyone and everyone, no matter the consequences, no matter how they respond. Um, And that's why this is a test. He's testing him here. But remember, God's tests aren't to harm us or to make our lives more difficult or to watch us fail. God's tests are to grow us and to prepare us and to help us grow in endurance because that's what he wants to do here. He wants to use this to grow Samuel, to prepare him for what he'll face later. Years later, not too far from now, uh, Samuel will have to stand before the Old Testament version of Vladimir Putin, an illogical crazy, power-hungry king of Israel, Saul. And he's going to have to stand before him. You know what he's going to have to say? The same exact message he's going to say here to Eli. God's going to cut you down. And guess what? Saul doesn't like it. Could Samuel do that right now? Mm -mm. 
No way. He would fold like a fresh pile of laundry. God knows he can't do it right now. So he's tossing him a softball right now to prepare him for what's to come later. But for Samuel, this doesn't feel like a softball. This feels like a 98-mile-per-hour knuckleball coming right at his head, right? Tell the person you love most in this world that God is going to punish him forever. Go. Softball. Uh, That's why I call this point, uh, true love is willing to speak hard truths. When we withhold God's truth from someone who is living in sin, because we love them, we're not loving them. Not really. We're actually hating them. We're allowing them to continue to sin against God to their own destruction. And, and that's not love. And Eli learned this lesson the hard way. That withholding truth, it doesn't serve that person and it doesn't serve you in the end. Withholding truth, God's truth, from someone who's living in sin, it doesn't serve them and it doesn't serve you. And by highlighting it now, I'm hoping that we won't make the same mistake. So if while I've been speaking about Eli and Samuel and sitting on hard messages and love for the person making it hard for us to even think about saying, if while I've been talking about that, someone's popped into your head, if a person has popped into your mind, someone whom you love deeply, but you know is living in sin, and the thought of even confronting them with truth kind of makes you feel just like Samuel here, afraid of how they'll respond and what will come of it. If that's you, I can't say this for certain, but I would guess the person that came to mind was brought to you by the Holy Spirit. I would guess that. More than likely, it's the Holy Spirit. And more than likely, it's your Samuel test too. Will you fare any better than Eli? I I don't know. I hope so. Your love for that person may prevent you from wanting to say that thing, that hard thing, that hard truth. Uh, But one of the things we should glean from this verse is that true love is willing to speak hard truths. That's what true love is. That's point one. Point two, it's never too late to turn it around. Uh, Verses 16 through 18. What's happening here, uh, Samuel's wrestling in his heart with his heavy work. He doesn't know what he's going to do with this, but he's just trying to press on with his day, pretending like nothing happened the night before. But in verses 16 and 17, Eli brings it up first. Eli comes up to him, and he calls Samuel over, and as per usual, Samuel comes up. Yes, Eli, you call me? What is it? How can I help you? I love Samuel. So sweet. And Eli asks him this. What was it that he told you? Do not hide it from me. What was it that he told you? Don't hide it from me. Uh, Eli's not beating around the bush, and this question tells us so much. Here's what it tells us. It tells us that Eli has not forgotten what happened the night before. He's well aware. He remembers it. Number two, it tells us that Eli knows that God spoke to Samuel. He knows. What is it that he told you? He knows God spoke to Samuel. Number three, it tells us that Eli knows that Samuel's thinking about keeping it to himself, that he's struggling to say it, and he's tempted to sit on it, right? That's why Eli says, do not hide it from me. Don't hide it from me. Why would he know that? Because when we read the rest of the verse, I think we'll see that Eli suspects the word that Samuel received from the Lord has to do with Eli. It has to do with him. He suspects that. Listen to what he says. Eli goes on, may God do so to you. I have to read this slowly because it's super twisty. May God do so to you and more also if you hide anything from me of all that he told you. It's a mouthful sentence. Uh, And on first read, it sounds like Eli's calling a curse on Samuel. So help me, Samuel. If you don't tell me, may God do this to you. That's what it sounds like. Uh, But that's not exactly right. That's not what's happening. Eli's not threatening Samuel. He's uh, giving him a loving reminder. 
It's giving him a loving reminder. So I want to remind you, Eli received a word from the Lord in chapter 2. And what did he do with it? He sat on it. That's why he's in this predicament in the first place. God told him something. He sat on it, did nothing with it. Now he's in trouble. That's Eli's situation. So now Eli knows Samuel has received a word from the Lord too. And he's not supposed to sit on it. And Eli suspects, number one, that message is about him. And he suspects, number two, Samuel's tempted to just keep it to himself, to not speak it out loud, to not say it to a person he loves. So Eli tells Samuel the same thing that God tells Ezekiel in the passage I have tattooed on my left arm. In that passage in Ezekiel, God warns Ezekiel saying this, if I say to the wicked, O wicked one, you shall surely die. And then he tells Ezekiel, and you do not speak to the wicked one and call him to turn from his ways. Not only will they die in their iniquity, but I'll require their blood on your hands because you didn't say anything, is what God says to Ezekiel. Eli's not calling down a curse. He's reminding Samuel that God gave him a message that was meant to be passed on. And if he doesn't pass on God's message of judgment, he's liable to experience the same measure of judgment on his own disobedience for not saying it. Does that make sense? God wants you to tell them they're in sin. And if they don't turn around, they're in trouble. And if you don't warn them, they're still going to die. But he might bring that judgment on you because you sat on it. True love is willing to speak hard truths. And Eli truly loves Samuel. And thankfully, this warning, it works. It works. Praise God. In verse 18, Samuel tells Eli everything, and he hides nothing. And it must have been really difficult for Samuel to do so, but he tells him every single word that God says. The text doesn't say it, but let's just imagine human nature. Samuel's got to be weeping. He's talking to his father for all intents and purposes, and God said, he's going to punish you forever, and he's going to kill both your sons on the same day. And this is, he's got to be sobbing through this. And how does Eli respond? How does he take this bad news? He says, Samuel, it is the Lord. It's the Lord. And if you ever see the Lord in all caps, L-O-R-D, all caps, <clears throat> when you see it all in caps, that's God's sacred, his covenant name. That's the same name he gives Moses in Exodus, I am who I am. It's a very special name, and the Jews rarely used it, almost never said it out loud, wouldn't even read it out loud because they didn't want to take it in vain. They didn't want to use it improperly. The Lord in all caps is a reference to Yahweh, <clears throat> the name of God's true and complete nature with all of his attributes, right? El Shaddai is a name for God, God the Almighty. Uh, Jehovah Jireh, you know that, God the provider. We have names for God based on ways we understand and ways he shows himself. Lord in all caps, all of God with all of his attributes. And what Eli says is, Yahweh has spoken. And Yahweh's word is final. You don't protest it. You can't appeal it. He said it. It's done. And then he adds this. Let him do what seems good to him. Let him do what seems good to him. Yahweh, the great I am, who is omnipotent, omniscient, omnipresent, self-sufficient, patient, kind, loving, good, just, we went through all these. That God has spoken. He's spoken. And since that's what he said, Samuel, if that's what he said, then whatever he decides, even if it means destruction for me and my family, whatever that God says, it's good. That's what Eli is saying there. Uh, point being, Eli not only acknowledges the fairness of God's judgment, he calls it good. It's good. 
And that tells us a lot about Eli. But to show you, uh, we're going to have to zoom out. You know, the iPhone, boop, boop. The little kids, they play on iPads so much. I see them on paper sometimes trying to make things bigger. It's funny. Um, we're going to zoom out a little. I'm going to show you the story in full so we can see Eli in full. If we look at Eli from everything we've looked at in 1 Samuel, 1 Samuel 1 to 3, we've seen a lot of things, but Eli's had some really positive moments as a priest. He has. He sees Hannah, he prays for her, and God uses that prayer to give her a child, right? Uh, what else has he done? He's raised Samuel as his own. By and large, he has done his priestly job faithfully. In chapter 2, Elkanah and Hannah are coming every year. Eli prays for them. He blesses them, and God answers those prayers and blessing. They're having more and more kids. They're experiencing God's blessing. Eli, as a priest, pretty good. He's doing pretty good. Eli as a father, not so much, right? His sons are doing evil. And for years, he turns a blind eye. He does nothing about it. Eventually, he warns them. They ignore him. What does he do about it? Nothing. He doesn't restrain him. He doesn't stop him. He's content to kind of let it go on. God patiently waited for Eli to do something. Eli didn't. So God sends a prophet to warn Eli. What does Eli do? He ignores the warning, which is why God's bringing this judgment on him now. Eli failed as a father because he failed as a father. He failed as a priest, right? He gave up. He laid down the axe on chopping down the redwood in his heart. And now he's experienced the consequences. His life is fading. His life's a mess. Um, that's where we're at. Is that a fair recap of everything we've seen with Eli so far? Chapters 1 through 3, would you say? Yeah, great. But here's what I think chapter 3 shows us about Eli. Last week, I told you that we were meant to compare and contrast Hophni and Phinehas with Samuel. They're disobedient. They ignored Samuel's urgent, attendant. He's obedient and all the rest. That's true. With that, I think we're also supposed to juxtapose, put side by side, Eli's failures with his sons, Hophni and Phinehas, against Eli's successes with Samuel. I think we're meant to see this and this and look back and forth. And when we do, I think we'll see that 1 Samuel 3 is uh, Eli's Samson moment. It's his Samson moment for you Lord of the Rings fans. This is his, uh, after putting up, trying to take the ring from Frodo, this is his valiant Boromir moment, you know, at the end, I think. And admittedly, I could be wrong. I could be reading this text incorrectly, but I'm convinced <clears throat> that Eli's using the last bit of his strength to do things differently with Samuel. I, I do, and I want to show you what I mean. If you have your Bible, look at 1 Samuel 3.6. What does Eli, how does he refer to Samuel in, in verse 6? He says, no, I didn't call you my, see what see it in verse 6? My son. He refers to Samuel as his son, right? But then in verse 13, God's explaining why he's going to judge Eli, why he's going to bring this judgment on his house. And God says, because his sons were blaspheming and he did not restrain them. God judges Eli for what he failed to do with his sons, Hophni and Phinehas, then look at verse 16. Eli calls Samuel over and he refers to Samuel as my son again. What I'm trying to show you is uh, 1 Samuel chapter 3 presents a sandwich of sons. <laughs> you got one piece of bread, here's Samuel. You got the meat of disobedience and failure in Hophni and Phinehas, but then another piece of bread in Samuel again. And Eli sees all of them as his sons. And when we read chapter 3 with that in mind, we'll see that every place that Eli failed with his biological sons, Hophni and Phinehas. He tries to do it differently and succeed with his spiritual son, Samuel. Every place. Think about it. Before Hophni and Phinehas are acting amok, Samuel sits silently. He does nothing. God warns him about it, and what did Eli do? He allowed his love for his sons to press mute 
on God's voice. I'm just going to pretend I didn't hear it. I'm just going to ignore it. That was before. But now, when Eli realizes that God is calling Samuel, what does he do? He coaches Samuel how to hear from the Lord. He wants his son to hear from the Lord. The very next morning, he's well aware that Samuel is going to be tempted to sit on it, to make the same exact mistake that Eli did, withhold a hard word from someone you love. So what does he do? He addresses it head on. Eli tells Samuel, don't hide it from me. Tell me every single word. He warns Samuel so that Samuel won't face the very same judgment that Eli is in this moment. He loves Samuel. So he's telling him, he's urging him, speak God's word to anyone and everyone. I don't care how close they are. I don't care what the consequence. You speak God's word. Don't hide it. Don't bury it. Don't experience God's judgment on yourself. Speak it, Samuel. And when that word from Samuel is a hard word on Eli, what does Eli do? He shows Samuel how to rightly respond to God's word. He says, it's good. He accepts it as good. I told you in point one that God was testing Samuel by tossing him a softball. It didn't feel like a softball to Samuel, right? And I get that, but here's what made it a softball. What made it a softball is how Eli would respond to this hard word, how God knew Eli would respond to this hard word. Eli says, it's good. If it's good to the Lord, it's, it's good to me. Let him do what's good for him. You see what I'm saying here? Eli's last act as a priest was to train Samuel how to be a faithful prophet. This is his last real act as a priest. He was teaching his son how to succeed in all the ways that he himself had failed. I think that's beautiful. And I think that also proves what I told you at the beginning of the series of 1 Samuel. Uh, there's no such thing as villains and heroes. The Bible presents only two categories of people. There are the unrighteous, those who reject God to the very end, and there are the redeemed who still sin who still need to pick up the axe and chop at it every day. And Eli is trying to fix his mistakes by using the last bit of his strength to ensure that Samuel is different. That's why I like to call it his Samson moment. God, give me the strength to push these pillars out. You know, this is all he's got left. And that's what real repentance is. Real repentance is this, acknowledging our sin, accepting God's judgment that it is wrong, recognizing that he is right to judge us, and then turning things around anyways. Not to withhold or avoid the consequences of our actions. God may still bring the consequences of our actions on us. But because God is worthy and his way is best, even if we have to still experience the consequences of our actions, that's real repentance. That's what a real redeemed person would do. That's exactly what Eli is doing here. I think he's a picture of a redeemed person in 1 Samuel who still sins. And here's my favorite part. This is at the tail end of Eli's life. Where has he been? At home, unable to do his priestly duties. Going blind. He can't see. He can barely do anything. And yet, even though it's at the end, it's never too late to turn it around. It's never too late to repent. Whether it's Eli, the thief on the cross, or one of us today, I don't care how long it's been since you picked up the axe, it's never too late to repent and turn to God. That's what I see in these verses. Um, that's point two. Quickly close it out with our third and final point. And when I say quickly here, I do mean pretty quickly. Uh, verses 319 verses through 4.1, the God of reversal. Uh, what's happening in these verses? It was hard. He didn't want to do it, but Samuel finally did. He tells Eli every word, and when he tells him everything, guess what? He passed the test. Samuel honored God more than he honored his father. He didn't commit the same mistake that Eli did in breaking the first commandments. He passed the test, and like uh, God told Eli in chapter 2, God honors those who honor him. 
That's the promise, and that's what we see happening in these last few verses. God is honoring Eli's effort. God is honoring Samuel's heart, and through them both, God is honoring the people too, and he's going to reverse this whole story. He's going to reverse this whole story. We've already kind of talked about this flip in Eli, this reversal in Eli. So outside of that, I'm going to give you four more. There's a reversal in the priesthood. Israel's priests were corrupt. They were false prophets. Eli, I'm sorry, Eli, I will include him, but Hophni and Phinehas. False prophets, men who would use people's devotion and faith for God to manipulate and abuse them. False prophets who would say, they would talk from their own twisted heart, what they want. God wants you to do this. And if you do it, he'll bless you. If you don't, he's going to punish you. God never said that. That's not what he's after. Before, there were false prophets everywhere. But now, false prophets are getting cut down. Their replacement, the true prophet, is being grown and matured. And this text says that God was with him every step of the way. And verse 19 tells us that God let none of Samuel's words fall to the ground. And what that means is, unlike the false prophets who said things and it never happened, every single time Samuel spoke on God's behalf, guess what happened? It came true. His prophetic record was flawless. There was a reversal in the priesthood. That's one. Two, there was a reversal in the land. Where is all this taking place? In Shiloh. When's the first time we heard about Shiloh in 1 Samuel? 1 Samuel chapter 1, verse 3. We were introduced to the city of Shiloh, and we're told, Shiloh, where the two sons of Eli, Hophni, and Phinehas were priests. What's Shiloh associated with? Corruption. That's what it's known for. It was synonymous for spiritual, physical, sexual abuse. The tent of meeting there, that's where God dwells, but everyone's like, God's not there. That's not what's happening. You say Shiloh before, and the people are thinking, corruption, cover-ups, false gospels, Shiloh. Yeah, that, before. But now, chapter 321 tells us what? Shiloh is known for being the place where God appears. The Lord appeared again, where? At Shiloh. For the Lord revealed himself to Samuel, where? At Shiloh. There was a reversal in the land. Point two. Three, reversal in the people. There's a lot of corruption, a lot of brokenness. Before, the people had a bad taste in their mouth when they thought about the temple, the priests, the sacrifices, and even God himself. In chapter two, Eli tells his sons this. The news of your treachery has spread all over Israel. Everybody knows about it. The news that is spreading all over, that everyone's talking about, is the corruption of the priesthood. The corruption of faith in God and religion before. But now all of Israel, we're told, from Dan to Beersheba, from the northernmost border to the southernmost border, everyone knows for a fact that there is a true prophet and the word of God is spoken from him. That's the news that is spreading. And as it spreads, the hearts of the people are softening and God is restoring their faith. There's a reversal in the people. And finally, four, there is a reversal in Samuel. Chapter three, verse one, Samuel is a boy. You add verse 7, he's a boy who does not yet know the Lord, who's never heard the Lord speak to him. Before, into the chapter, verse 20, God's grown that boy and established him as a prophet of the Lord. Samuel, a boy who didn't know the Lord, is now a grown man, a mature man who is known in all of Israel for being the one to whom God reveals himself. Samuel may have spoken. You may have heard Samuel's voice, but what you really heard is the voice of the Lord because God won't let one word from Samuel's mouth hit the ground. He's a true prophet. There's a reversal in Samuel. Never heard from the God. Now, if you heard Samuel, you probably heard God. Crazy. To recap, reversal in the priesthood. Land, people, and even uh, Samuel. And how did all this reversal take place? Politicians. Education. Political reform. Military might. 
social justice movements. Help me out. How'd they experience this reversal? God's word. God's word. Uh, you know, there's no chapters and verses in the original, so brush that aside, but look a little closer. You'll see this entire scene is sandwiched between two verses. Chapter 3, verse 1. Chapter 4, verse 1. Before, chapter 3, verse 1, the word of the Lord was rare in those days. Chapter 4, verse 1, the word of Samuel, which is the word of the Lord to the people, came to all of Israel. It was rare. Nobody knew it. Nobody heard from it. They were living how they want. Sandwiched with all this reversal, everybody, the word of God came to all the people. The priesthood, the people, the land, and the children, the adolescents like Samuel, they were all transformed. How? When they heard, understood, and responded rightly to the word of God. The word of God did that. Nothing else came. I told you a few weeks ago, what man tears down and pollutes, we'll do our best to do our worst. God himself uh, will build up and make holy. And I'm praying, and I've seen it in our little body, that we will continue to be washed by the water of the word, that we will continually and more and more experience reversal in our hearts, in our homes, in our church, and in our land too, that the word of God will come to all the world. Uh, but may it start here with us, yeah? Let's pray.